Hello and welcome to Blue Royalty, a London is Blue podcast dedicated to the Chelsea women's team. I'm your host, Jessica Humphreys, joined today uh, for a little bit of a special interview. We're talking today with Paul Lagan, owner of Capital Football, a, a website which covers all the London clubs but really focuses on Chelsea men and women. Uh, he's someone who you might have seen around if you are at King's Meadow regularly. Paul, thank you for joining me. Not a problem. Thank you for inviting me. Just want to start, I guess, by finding out when you sort of started covering Chelsea women and and sort of what it was like back then and, and kind of how you got, got into all of it? Well, I mean, I, I've been a professional football journalist for the best part of sort of 35 years and uh, and uh, I've been doing football for most of that and I've been covering Chelsea for most of that. So, I mean, the, the concept of Chelsea women didn't even exist <sighs> in terms of coverage or, or, or going to matches and so forth when I first started covering Chelsea as a club. But um, obviously in, in the early 90s, they started to make inroads and be formed and they were having their their name in the, and match reports in, in, in the men's match day programme and so forth. So they, they, their consciousness, you know, they're, they're, my consciousness, my understanding of them became at that point. So it'd be about around 92, 93, and then later on, maybe more importantly, around the 97, 98 mark, that I started, I started taking an interest in them without necessarily covering them because time was different. Times are slight, slightly difficult in those, in different in those days. But um, when they started moving to, when they moved to Wheatsheaf Park in Staines, that's when they became more accessible. And then I started covering them formally as, as, as a journalist when they moved to King's Meadow. So that'd be what, 2016 or so forth. So I've been doing them now for the past sort of seven, coming up to eight years now. Yeah. And I guess in that time, obviously, the, the club has changed so much. How... How has that sort of played out to you? How have you seen sort of the club grow from that, you know, some sort of hard to see games, match reports in in the men's um yeah. and the men's games to to where they are now? Yeah, I mean there's been a, a seismic shift in the, the development of the women's side on the pitch both on the pitch and off the pitch. I mean it's I mean anyone who covers women's football even now. Well, you know, they'll they'll hear people talking about the days when you know you couldn't get kit and they were borrowing men's shirts and so forth, and it was all too big, and they were getting changed in their huts and all this kind of stuff. And um, you might think those are the you know the you might think those were all 30, 40 years ago, you know, but they weren't. They were just relative. They're relatively recently, you know. And and women's get the women's game and and, and Chelsea women were a sideshow really. For, for a long period of time um, but players didn't change I mean players weren't accepting of that you know they were at the time those players back in the you know when I started covering them they were determined to, to, to see improvements and they were even basic improvements you know I don't think even then they could envisage where they are now but it's what they wanted it to be you know they I don't think they thought that within you know seven eight years they would go from sort of like you know, having a man and a dog on a park bench, you know, watching a uh, watching them kick a, kick a ball around where there's nothing but dog poo on the pitch and so forth, to now being in magnificent stadiums where there's thirty, forty thousand people and uh, then European Championships and World Cups. So I don't think they envisaged that, and uh, they saw it as being sort of small steps, but gradually those steps became a little bit bigger. And uh, once they breached those steps, 
because they found the the door started to open a little bit more and uh, a lot more people started to take uh, an active interest in them and um, I think when the broadcasters uh, and in particular the BBC in this instance for UK football started to take an interest and they started to broadcast matches that was the foothold that that was the foothold foothold that uh, women's football needed to, to to get onto and and to stay onto and they needed to keep those keep those broadcasters and those broadcasters brought with them new audience and from a new audience uh, clubs were then able to say look we now have something to offer and uh, their main clubs the clubs who were supplying them and with the old bits of kit and so forth were now being forced and shamed into actually supplying them with proper kit. So that's where it started, really. And then you have to say that the media were instrumental in taking the development of the game and, and improving it for, for where we are today. So it's changed Im- immensely. I remember only a few years ago chatting to Hedvig Lindell, you know, when she finished, she had her last game. And I was chatting to her on the pitch after when she played the last game, and we had about a ten-minute chat on the pitch in the centre circle. At uh, and uh, and she was saying how you know almost with a tear in her eye how much the game had changed from when she first started, when she didn't have any kit, to a time where she was now sort of leaving Chelsea in a position where she was the number one goalkeeper in Sweden, number one goalkeeper in England really at that time, and uh, she was moving on. And uh, and that she knew that her contribution, her determination, her drive to improve the, the standards within the club were, had paid off. And that other people followed her. She wasn't the only leader, but other people followed her. Other players followed her and they became a voice. And when you have a collective voice um, it, it, and, and it's right and it's reasonable, then people have to listen, but you have to have that backing behind it and uh, the determination behind it, and uh, what for, and what forced clubs to start supporting their team, their women's teams more, was the fact was was the fact that there there was this desire, there was this audience, and that they didn't want to be left behind. Yeah, and you know when you're talking about sort of that player power, that's obviously something that that we continue to see teams unfortunately forced into a lot of the time at at obviously the highest levels you know thinking of Spain at the moment but obviously something Chelsea have really benefited from I think over the years has been the leadership of Emma Hayes and sort of her experiences in terms of also wanting to push internally and for players to know that they sort of have the support of their manager have the awareness of the manager to keep pushing standards higher and higher at the club what's it been like um you know, working with Emma Hayes, basically, like in terms of covering covering Chelsea and seeing the club develop under her leadership? Well, you can't talk about Chelsea and Chelsea's success, really, without, um, you know, putting Emma's Emma's name be- beside that. And, uh, you know, she's a, an interesting character. She has a, she has a sort of combination, a, a combination of characteristics, which when they're put together, they can be quite formidable. I mean, she's... Um, um, an arch pragmatist. She has um, a, a strong sense of empathy, um, and she has a, a steely uh, element of control freakery about her. So, when you individually, th- those characteristics can be good and bad, but when they're put together in in, in one unit, in, in Hayes's unit, and put in an environment where she's able to utilize those particular characteristics and she's given the opportunity to utilize those characteristics then you can build something very very strong 
Uh, and in Chelsea's case, she has all those qualities. I mean, she was a former player. And uh, so she was a coach. She knew what it was like to be sacked. So, so she knew, you know, she didn't want to be sacked. You don't want to be sacked. So what you do is you, is you try to create an environment for success. And uh, the pragmatism from her point of view is that she's understood that she, it wasn't just her alone. She's not a, one, a single person. She needs to have and develop a, a, a base around her. And so she, she got people that she understood who trusted her and who had the skill set to complement what she needed to do. So you, you have people like Paul Green, who has a fantastic understanding of players and a fantastic understanding of um, how to deal with players as well and is quite ruthless in, in many ways, but is also an extremely nice guy and, she can, and can handle people really, really well. And uh, Hayes needed somebody like that beside her to keep her in check as well. So they complement each other amazingly well. So when you've got those two together and then you've got a club, which to be fair, you know, eight, ten years ago, the men's side weren't really bothered about the football club. They wanted they were quite happy for for there to be an entity to 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 do it themselves, get on with it basically is what Abramovich and uh, Bruce Buck basically said to her. Yeah, yeah, we'll support you, but you get on and do it. You know, you've got the skill sets, you do it. So that enabled Hayes to have the confidence to say, right, this is how I'm going to build it, and I'll build it bit by bit, and I'll ensure that at the at the at the at the, at the, inst at the start of it all, I'll get a group of players who are squad players who can maintain our position. And then I know that in two, three, four years' time, I'll be able to add to that squad who won't be squad players. They'll be starters and they'll be very good players. And they'll be the people who will actually be able to bring us in uh, silverware. And to complement all of that, she, you know, she utilised the, uh, the, the staff that were at Stamford Bridge. She saw the fantastic uh, facilities at Cobham. And, you know, when she first went there, there was just a, a little shed and, 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 and a room, and that was it. So she said, no, I'm not having any of that. So she went to Bruce Buck, and she said, this is what I want, this is what I need. And the club said, yeah, 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 okay, you get on with it, we'll supply it. And so you had that almost like this perfect storm of characteristics, finance, ability, and desire to put together a single entity. And when those all come together, uh, you, you then have to be able to sort of maintain that and understand how to maintain that. And so Hayes looked at the, the, the successful men's sides of the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and she saw that, you know, you build on once you've been successful. So once she had that first trophy, she was able to get rid of some players who other people thought was, was impossible to get rid of. But she brought other players in with different skill sets, but complementary to, 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 to the squad. And that enabled them to move a bit further on in their, in, in their development levels. So it's no surprise that in the past 10 years, we've seen this upward trajectory, exponential curve in development in terms of the, on, on the pitch and in the development of what's going on behind behind the scenes things that you don't see the, the development the development of training the development of coaches and the development of individuals within that to, to fill a particular skill set and Hayes is at the forefront of all of that she understands that and she's quite happy to continue with that I believe provided she's been given the support and uh, we're now moving into a new era era of women's football where a lot of other clubs are catching up and they're looking at Chelsea they see how they do it 
and they're starting to replicate that within their clubs. And that provides the greatest challenge that Hayes will have this season and, and, and next season is to maintain the gulf between them and the rest of the teams that are coming up behind them. And uh, she understands that. And it's up to the club to supply her with the, the revenue and uh, supply her with the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the players in order to achieve what she wants to achieve and what ultimately Chelsea wants to achieve, which is more silverware and ideally the Champions League. But, you know, you've got the right person in, in, at, that, at this moment in time to do that in Emma Hayes. Yeah, and Chelsea obviously have been extraordinarily dominant over the past sort of five or so years uh, in particular. Um, you know, really sort of they've, they feels like we've well overtaken Arsenal in the sense in terms of recent silverware from their sort of earlier dominance at the start of the 21st century. Why do you think Chelsea were able to become as dominant as they have been? Do you put that all down to Hayes and her influence in, in kind of the areas that, that you've just spoken about? How much do you think it, it was sort of the club being willing to invest? And why do you think they were so much more willing than than other clubs, you know, than like the, the Manchester cities or the Manchester Uniteds of the world? Mm. Why? It's difficult to say. Maybe Arsenal took their eyes off the, 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 eye, off the their eye off the ball, uh, to coin a phrase. Uh, Manchester City, I think, were on a similar trajectory to Chelsea and they, and they, and they became Chelsea's main rivals for titles uh, un, un, under Hayes. Um, she saw off the Arsenal threat and the Manchester City came through and uh, started to be a little bit more dominant and, and they became, you know, fantastic rivals. You know, the mutual respect because I think they both understood the team under the players understood but I think the uh, the staff behind the players also understood what it took to to get to where they were and that was with, that was with the financial support of the of, of the clubs of, of the men's team so um and I think Arsenal took their eye off the ball and as a consequence and uh I think they're starting to realise that now with with Jonas I think they're realising that they, they can now they can now get back and they need to I think We'll probably see Arsenal in a, in a much more competitive. It's all about revenue and it's all about desire and it's all about having the right contacts to get the right players in and try to get those right players in and continue to get those right players in and um, and to look to the future. I mean, when Sam Kerr came a couple of years ago, I mean, Hayes had already been, had already earmarked her a couple of years previously. And so I think that's one of the... Uh, areas where Chelsea have been able to dominate over Arsenal and certainly dominate over Manchester City in that they can identify players for the future. And I think we're seeing that kind of rotation even, even now. We saw the loss of Ericsson and Peniel Harder. I mean, I, I believe the club were perfectly happy for them to stay, but they knew that their time, certainly Magnuson's time, I believe, as a centre-back, was uh, was going to be limited. And so she opted to move on. And um, Peniel Harder, again, you know, I think would have would have done progressed really well at Chelsea. But I think the club realised that, that, you know, they came as a package in particular and that she too would move on as well. So they, they knew this, but they also knew this, you know, two years ago. So they were able to sort of identify players who they felt would they would bring in, nurture and, and develop. And we see that with Anika Nguyen, you know, the, the Dutch player. You know, we can see her, how they brought her in. They then farmed her out last year. She's now back in. And then that's up to her up, up to her to have an opportunity to get in. But they also brought in Buchanan as well. So, you know, they're very, they have a, a great sense of, I know where the team needs to develop. 
and uh, know which areas we need to develop and we know what players we want to get or the type of players we want to get and then there's people in the background the Paul Greens and other people in the background whose job it is to make sure that those players are, are ready and available and when their contracts are up they'll try and grab them you know so it's that development it's that background development which you see in the men's side of the great men's sides of the uh, the Liverpools and the Man United's of these you know and we see how they developed and how successful they are and uh, it's no secret you know you, you get the best in you pay them the most and you have the greatest greatest chance of success yeah and it's been really interesting to see how Chelsea I think really worked especially over the past couple of seasons like you kind of touched on there to have that sort of quite fluid turnover of players um, something I guess that, that's also obviously gone on behind the scenes around around this time has been the, the sale of the club, obviously. And we've seen a drastic change uh, on the men's side from the impact of that. Obviously, you know, with the women's side having a very strong structure, we we haven't really obviously seen the same kind of upheaval there. But obviously you cover the men's team as well. Have you noticed a development in terms of sort of that one club attitude that gets talked about a lot? Um, seeing the Chelsea men's and women's teams as part of, you know, Chelsea as a whole, rather than these just literal separate silos. The uh, the one the one club concept, I'm afraid, is really just a marketing tool. Really, it's just uh, it's it's a projection of a brand, the development of a brand. Trust me, the men are developing on one side. The women are developing on another side and the, the youth teams are developing un, 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 underneath as well. Um, I think what we're seeing now in the men's side is they've obviously shed, uh, put a, a tremendous amount of money and they've got rid of so many players and they've brought in lots of players that that in itself creates confusion to a degree and uh, inconsistency. So um, Emma Hayes must be looking across the, you know, the, you know, the, the pitches at the men's side and thinking, hmm, they they've fallen a little bit off here, you know, but we'll see. We'll see how that develops with the men. I mean, they've obviously got good players, but I think if you ask many Chelsea supporters this time last year, uh, you know, to name the players who are in Chelsea's squad now, they probably wouldn't recognise those names. And uh, so we'll, we'll have to just see how, how, how that works. I think on the women's side, I think, and in terms of the club as a whole, I think there is a, a change that there's been a business change in the, in the sense of the, the financing of the women's side. I mean, previously, as we all know, the, historically, the club was all like on their uppers at one point, and John Terry would, you know, donate cash in order to provide facilities and training kit and balls and so forth. And that moved through to the when the club was taken over uh, by the men's side. They, they got support from the Chelsea Foundation, which is effectively a charity. So there was lots of funding going through that way to the club, you know, Chelsea. Um, but now uh, with the new owners, the new, with the new American owners, there's either there's, there's more of a break in that in, in that in terms of the finance and uh, Chelsea now Chelsea women are now looking to bring in or I think I've already brought in a, a commercial director and there's going to be people supporting her I think even Carly Telford might be supporting her in in that role that person in that role 
to develop a revenue stream for the women. So we'll see. We'll see how that how the future of the football of the women's football club and the finances that they'll be able to generate in order to produce players and bring in top quality coaches by the fact that they now have to be almost self-generating revenue. And whilst that's only in its infancy at the moment, and they'll still be supported by the by the men's club. Uh, for the foreseeable future, there will be a development away from that, so that they're almost a, a separate financial entity in, 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 from the men's club, and we'll, um, and who knows how that will impact on on revenue in, in terms of their development or, or, or bringing in top quality players at on, on high costs. But that I think has been the change since the, since the American owners have come in. They've started to look at the women's side. Yes, we'll support them and we'll provide them with a uh, with people who will provide them with the with, with the revenue. But so that's the way it's moving at the moment. Yeah. And a key thing, obviously, with that sort of revenue picture has been around growing the fan base, which is something that I think Chelsea have done well in in parts and maybe not so well in, in other parts. Um, obviously, we've, we've reached a point where we regularly get really good crowds at King's Meadow. What What's your perception sort of on that that relationship between the fan base for the Chelsea women's team and, and maybe how that differs from from the fan base that, that we see at men's Stamford Bridge games? Well, I mean, you, you know, you, you can look at the demographic of the uh, of, of the of the women's team, uh, the attendances at the women. I mean, King's Meadow holds what three thousand eight hundred, something like that, maximum. Obviously, Chelsea's closer to forty two thousand. You know, so uh, but you know, when I go to King's Meadow and uh, you know and uh, when I'm walking along the, the the stand there towards the press seat, you know, I'm waving and chatting to people I've known for the last five or six years, and I've got to know them quite well. And uh, they're the same people, and they're, they're now sort of starting to bring their kids along as well, and we're starting to see a lot more kids there. So we're getting a lot more of that in the women's game, a lot, a lot of families. I mean, traditionally, that's been the uh, the core the core attendance no, all, all over the UK in terms of the uh, the women's uh, the, the attendance at women's games. Uh, but every bit now and again, we're starting to get people adrift from the men's team who will come into the women's team and looking at the women's team and thinking, yeah, this is still football, you know, and it's more accessible because you can't get tickets to Stamford Bridge. So we're, we're, we're coming to them, coming to the women. So, but Chelsea have reached the, 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 their peak now. I mean, at King's Meadow, like I say, only holds 3,800. 3, they don't, they won't fill it every week, but they'll fill it most weeks, you know, so... And in terms of the new ownership, in terms of developing a revenue stream, obviously attendance is, is part of that. So they'll be looking at some point to seeing how they're going to boost the attendance uh, at Chelsea's women, uh, at the women's matches, whether that's developing King's Meadow or whether that's moving somewhere else or back to the onto the bridge, who knows? But in terms of the, the types of people who, who attend uh, uh, the women's matches at Stamford Bridge, mostly women, some some people who don't want to go to the men's game they find that they find the noise you know they're overwhelming there's a sensory overwhelm uh, so you have certain characteristics of people who who, who love their football and, and find their home at at, at Stanford Bridge uh, at so big Barn at King's Meadow and traveling away and there's a hardcore about 40 50 who travel every to every game no matter where Chelsea play and even if it's in Europe on a friendly, you'll find the same 20 or 30 of those 50 or 60 go to those games as well. So it's an extraordinarily uh, you know, uh, loyal fan base, small but extraordinarily loyal. And, um, and they're to be commended and looked after, I think. And I'm hoping that Chelsea do that. 
definitely, uh, definitely agree. And it, it will be interesting to see, obviously, you know, how the development of the club maybe impacts or affects that sort of one element of that, which which you've already touched on, has been this desire to hold more games at Stamford Bridge. Um, there's increases in cost in ticket prices that sort of have come along as a result of that, um, but which also, you know, have been the club's choice. Chelsea are charging far more than Arsenal are, for example, for those games. What do you think about the prospect of moving away from Kings Meadow in the future? Obviously, you said that that's sort of where you really started uh, covering the Chelsea women's team properly. And I think it's become a very important ground for the club. But it feels like the end goal for a lot of women's teams is around, you know, the potential of playing full time in those main stadiums, um, which I guess goes some way again to that one club thing we were talking about and sort of the legitimacy or, or not of that. What do you make of that kind of prospect, that sort of future? Well, I think I think if you speak to Emma, she talks about King's Meadow as being her home. Uh, but she also thinks of Sanford Bridge as being her home. And I, I don't think that's been clever. I think that's been a, an understanding that Chelsea's future is at Stamford Bridge. Uh, Chelsea's women's future is at Stamford Bridge. They will eventually play all their games at Stamford Bridge. But there's an economy of scale in terms of how to make that happen. I mean, when you've got 40,000 people at Stamford Bridge at, at watching the men's game, you can you have to legally resource that for 40,000 people. So there's, there's a major cost involved in that. At the moment, if you started to, if, if suddenly Chelsea went to Stamford Bridge every week and uh, knew that they would be getting 20,000, 30,000 people there every week, there would be a massive cost implication for them to, to, to provide that service and to make that happen. And uh, that might very well outweigh, you know, the justification for doing it. And this is why they, at the moment, in this moment in time, they've got, they've split between the, their league season between Kings Meadow and, and Stamford Bridge. It's like, a, it's like a, they're at a tipping point and they're at a turning point and they're, and, and they're seeing how it goes and, and they're testing how how the how how the mood is in terms of attendances at Stamford Bridge for these sort of four or five games and also the Champions League games as well, which will all be played at at, at Stamford Bridge. Uh, they're all they've all been costed. Those matches have been costed. They've been fixed, and they and they believe at this moment in time they can justify bringing the women to to Stamford Bridge and uh, and to keep everybody safe and happy and and do all the legal requirements, the policing requirements, etc., the stewarding and so forth. So there's a lot of costs and resource to bring to Stamford bridge and um, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, in two years time the decisions made to bring all of Chelsea's games Chelsea women's games to Stamford Bridge I think under Abramovich I think it might have happened very, much more quicker I think he would have uh, made instant uh, provision for that to happen and uh, but the under the new owners I think that they're, they're looking and saying well you have to justify you know your own development financially as well and uh, when that happens, then we can talk business and then we'll bring you to Stamford Bridge. Because I think ultimately the players want to play at Stamford Bridge. I mean, when you sign a new Chelsea player and uh, they do all their in-house in media work on Chelsea, the, the players and so forth, you very rarely see them sitting, at, sitting uh, you know, having their picture taken at what was the old chem flow end at King's Meadow, you know, which is now the, uh, the, 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 the South Stand, I think. You know, they're all sitting, you know, in the East Stand, West Stand backgrounds. You know, I mean, they all want to be at Stamford Bridge. And they all, and uh, it must be a bit a bit hard, really, when you see a new player 
suddenly turn up at Stamford Bridge and then suddenly she's playing up at King's Meadow. It must be a bit, a, bit, a little bit discom discomforting for them, but I think they understand that and I think the club understand their future is at Stamford Bridge. Ditto Arsenal, ditto Man City, although Man City have just had naming rights for their academy, so maybe they're looking to stay a little bit longer at the, at, at the academy stadium, which is a lovely stadium, and uh, future developments at King's Meadow may see them stay at King's Meadow. You know, that'll be a business decision ultimately, but you know, it's up to it's, it's up to the club to make that decision. And I think fans can have a lot to say about that as well, if whether they want to go to Stamford Bridge or not. But uh, we'll see. But I think personally, uh, the ultimate the future of the, of, the, of the women's football team will be at the, at the bridge. Yeah, I think it'll be really interesting to see how it develops. I think that that win over Leon went a really long way to, you know, sort of building atmosphere and, and fun and excitement at, at Stamford Bridge in a way that maybe lower intensity games, shall we say, that had been held there in the past hadn't quite <laughs> whipped everyone up with the same excitement. Um, I just want to touch on on some of your favourites uh, as well, Paul. Do you have a, a favourite moment from from covering the Chelsea women's team? Oh, a favourite moment? I don't know, really. It's 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 interesting because as a journalist, I suppose I, mean, I have a slightly different perspective and different sort of like uh, approach to watching games than than. Although I am a fan, I have to say as well. I'm a, you know, but uh, you know, because sometimes you can get up close and, and 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 get to know and get to know players a little bit better, you know. And uh, you know, I one of my favourite moments, I suppose, is something that you know nobody would nobody would even think about. It was a couple of couple of years ago, and um, it was the last game of the season and uh, I was on the pitch sort of chatting to a couple of players and and this up comes um, um, G. She comes walking past, walking past me. She's got a bit of kit on her in her hands and she's giving kit away to the, uh, to, to, you know, the old kit away to, 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 her, to, to the fans, which I thought was lovely, really. So I said to her, G, you know, can, can, I, can I have a piece of kit? And she looked at me, you know, and she's sort of like four foot nothing and I'm sort of like, you know, five foot ten but you know wider than taller and she looked at me and started laughing her head off you know she said I don't think any of this will fit you to be perfectly honest but um in the end she did give me her a tracksuit top which is extremely small and I've uh, and, I, and I put it away in a drawer and um you know I'll look at it every now and again and, and, and that, that reminds me of, of that moment with G and, and, and the laughter because you very rarely have that kind of like contact with, with, with players you know what I mean and that little little moment when she said I'm sorry, but you're just a fat middle-aged bloke. <laughs> Why do you really want this? And then she understood that. And I think she, that, that kind of, she, she understood the fact it's a piece of kit from a footballer. And I think she understood that. And I think that, and, and to me, that was that kind of, you know, kind of relationship, that kind of like connection that maybe you wouldn't get with uh, uh, a footballer normally. You might get an autograph and so forth. But suddenly she thought, yeah, okay. Okay, I'll, I'll 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 let you have this, and and so that 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 was that that's something that always sticks in my mind. I have to say, but obviously, winning the leagues and winning the FA Cups and uh, getting close to, uh, and even even the defeats in the Champions League. You know what I mean? Those were moments where you think, what next? You know, how to have what what what's going to come next? Will they ever win the Champions League? So, whilst there's lovely little moments with G, and I've you know I've spoken to many you know. After the when Man, when Chelsea beat Manchester United to win the league title a couple of seasons ago, in, in the press room afterwards, you know we were told that Emma Hayes will be coming in with Sam, you know, so we were all sitting there, Sam Kerr, and then, so we were all sitting there, and in bowls this 
Australian, you know, screaming her head off. Yay! Santa pops in, bottle of beer in her hand. She sits down on, in, behind the, the, the manager's desk there in the press room. She looks at all us and says, oh, blimey, I better go phone Emma, Emma you know, because Emma's supposed to be here with me. So she phones Emma up and, you know, you have that kind of, and you're watching this kind of player manager relationship as well. And just thinking, this is interesting, you know what I mean? So she says, and she told Emma to get her what's it over there as quick as possible because she wants to do this press conference and get out and enjoy herself afterwards. So those are those wonderful kind of like post match sort of scenarios when everybody's happy, which I kind of remember. And also, even times when things weren't so great you know I remember when Chelsea lost a, a cup final to Arsenal you know and I, and I was chatting to uh, Ennio Luco in, in, at Wembley in the in the, in the mix zone at Wembley and, and Ennio was not happy at all you know and uh, you could see that she was frustrated and angry and then suddenly Jill Scott you know the Arsenal captain I think she might have been playing her last game for Arsenal that time comes you know walking from her changing room to the coach still in her kit clutching the cup fine the cup clutching the FA Cup on her hands and you can see any look around and then she walked behind her and she, and you can sense the frustration that this is what she's missed out on and I was experiencing that as well on her behalf as well so there's those kind of moments so that are off the field moments which kind of stick in my mind a, a, a lot and uh, and it's a privilege in my position in my profession to be able to be in that to be able to do that as well but on the field, you know, I think Beth's, Beth's goal for, for Chelsea against Spurs and that game at Stamford Bridge when she leathered that one in the back of the net, you know, that kind of set the tone for, for the season. And uh, that kind of like said to you know everyone at Chelsea that, you know, you know they, they do belong at Stamford Bridge as well. They can perform at Stamford Bridge. So little moments like that are, are the sort of things that I, 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 I remember. But also, you know, the one-to-ones with players who don't want things to be said publicly, but you know they're upset, they're unhappy. So having that kind of relationship sometimes with players who who trust you and uh, who use you as a, almost like a, a sounding board for their own frustrations as well at times, where they can't do it, you know, in-house or amongst family. So I get that as well occasionally, not often, but occasionally. And also the joy, you know, the sheer joy of watching these guys and supporters and fans and everybody get together, you know, winning the FA Cup at Wembley and winning the league titles here and there. I mean, so they're wonderful moments, you know, and uh, long may they continue. Yeah, we've been lucky to have a have a lot of them. And any favourite players as well? Well, I'm sure every single player will be listening to this podcast and, uh, <laughs> and they'll all be waiting for their own particular name <laughs> And it'd be unfair for me to say that because those are the sort of things which I'll probably get a tap on my shoulder from Emma uh, later on in the season saying, why did you do this? Why did you do that? And I'll justify it by saying this is this is the case. But um, it's difficult. It's difficult. I like lots of players from, you know, from the early days when they when they saw you. They were happy to see you, and I don't mean that disrespectfully. But I think, but now as 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 the, the game has developed, the start the players are starting to become a little bit more um, skeptical, a little bit more wary of, of the press, because that's how it's been reflected with the men. And uh, whereas I'm probably you know a common feature I have been for the past sort of ten years or so, I'll probably get that less so than than, than the new people turning up at, at the press conferences, and. 
but nevertheless they still behave slightly warily now so um it's difficult so i don't want to name anybody in particular any is one of my favorite players in terms of her personality and nobility obviously it's fantastic and she's she's done really really well for herself fran i mean you know when when fran first burst on the scene there when she came from Reading, you know yeah that was fantastic so she was she was she was part of chelsea's you know development and she's still part of the chelsea's future as well so i uh, and uh, and it's been fascinating watching her development you know on and off the field in, in those times um but people like viggy uh, lindell you know where her struggles and her determination to improve the standards within her team she, you know and, and also when she played for sweden to improve the standards there were, were, were commendable and it's been lot and, and those sort of players have been role models for those who've come afterwards and uh, so her and, and, and several others, Aaron Cuthbert's an amazing, amazing player, amazing personality, changed her position when she realised that perhaps, you know, her future at Chelsea was in the centre of midfield rather than the width. And, and she, I have no doubt, had a conversation with Emma Hayes and Hayes said, this is what we need to do. And, she, and, and, and Aaron said, yes, this is what I will do. And she's worked really hard at it. So I admire players who work really, really hard at their game. To maximise their potential, and uh, and Erin's uh, definitely one of one of those sort of players. And we'll see how uh, you know the goalkeeping situation develops. But uh, goalkeepers are always crazy, aren't they? So you know, and, uh, so I, I I love watching goalkeepers perform and speaking to them. They're a different breed completely. So those are the, those are a couple of players. I mean, I, I won't say favourites because it'd be unfair. But those are certain couple of players who I felt within my time covering Chelsea. Have have proven, you know, that you have to fight on the pitch as well as off the pitch to get what you want, and uh, and, and to drag the the women's game forward. And uh, uh, whilst a lot goes off, the, a lot happens off the pitch internally within a club. Those personalities are so so important, and 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 they represent the future. I think. And uh, so, any, Biggie, Aaron, Fran. Those four stand out for me at the moment as being people who I think have uh, uh, justified their, 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 their shirts for Chelsea and uh, can be very happy in their place in the, the history of women's football. A very, very diplomatic answer there. Very, well done. Well done on that one. Um, just want to wrap up, really, for some of your thoughts, predictions, hopes for the season to come. Obviously, you know what we're two or three weeks away now at this point um from the season starting so what what are you looking forward to what are you expecting what am i expecting i'm expecting a a, a lot closer division this season uh, as i said i think previously i mean the chelsea had set the standard for a number of seasons six or seven seasons now and uh, they've shown what it takes to be successful other clubs had not resourced their their, their women's side sufficiently well to be able to justify even being on the same pitch sometimes as Chelsea. Um, but that has changed. That has changed. Uh, Spurs uh, 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 are proven or certainly given a determination to, to be successful. Manchester City, whilst being in the doldrums, perhaps the last season and a half, know that they need to get off to a really, really good start. That's the, that's, that's the key thing. And I think that's a key thing for all successful sides, really. Because there's not enough league games, uh, really, in comparison to the men, you, you need to get off to a good start so, so you don't fall away early. I mean, Chelsea fell away early 
um, a, a few seasons ago and they were out of title contention by the end of October. And uh, that's not what Chelsea need to be. They need to be in contention right from the off. And Arsenal will prove that to be the case. Man City will prove that. Man United will prove that. So each of these clubs in particular, and, and perhaps uh, Aston Villa might prove themselves to be a bit of a dark horse, they know that a good start is absolutely essential. So those first game, October the 1st, or around that time, those teams who are at home need to capitalise on their home advantage and get those three points in the bag. And um, <clears throat> Chelsea's first game, obviously, is at uh, Stamford Bridge, first league game at Stamford Bridge against Spurs, against a potential uh, title rival. So they need to get off to a very, very strong start. And uh, Hayes knows that, and uh, that's what her pre-season training has been all about, that very first game. Yeah, well, obviously, in the past, we've not had the best luck with some of those first games. So, uh, But looking forward to that one at Stamford Bridge. Paul, thank you so, so much for joining me. I really, really appreciate it. It was fascinating to to hear your your opinions and your memories and, and your takes from, from your time covering Chelsea. Um, really appreciate you coming on. And thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much indeed for inviting me. All right, everyone, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Blue Royalty. We'll be back with you later in the week with some pre-season preview content. But until then, Chelsea fans, you know what to do. Keep the blue flag flying high.